Would you join with me in prayer? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to open up your word together. I just pray that you fill us with your spirit. Help us to be clearer and stronger and more aware than we naturally could be. And I pray in all this, fill us with your spirit as we fill ourselves with your word and open ourselves up. In Jesus' name, amen. Ego eimi. I promised, I promised Samuel I would start the sermon with Greek. Ego eimi, like Lego my ego. Ego. Say ego eimi. Now you know Greek. Congratulations. I know, it's pretty special, isn't it? It's not a really huge phrase. It's just two words. It's two little words, but it's a really important phrase. Last week, we did a little bit of a lit review about why Jesus came. We looked at the different verses where Jesus specifically said, the Bible specifically says why Jesus came. We're going to do that a couple more times here. But to this week, we're doing a lit review on the phrase, ego eimi, when those two words are together. We're looking at a series of times where Jesus specifically said, I am fill the blank. Ego eimi, fill in the blank. Because that's how you'd say it in the Greek. Actually, that's not how you'd say it in the Greek. That's misleading. I'm sorry. Any, any good Jew would not say ego eimi. It's not the way that they would phrase it. Because that's the way God phrased it. Back in, in Exodus chapter 3, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, well, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say, okay, so what's his name? What uh, what do I tell them? What's your name? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am that I am. Tell Tell them the one who actually is sent you. Now, that was written originally in Hebrew. But centuries later, when the Septuagint translated that into Greek, they translated that line as, and God said to Moses, Ego eimi. I am, I am. It's an emphatic way of saying it. I am, I am. That's, that's all it is. I'm the one who is. Later on in Leviticus, God said in Leviticus, Leviticus 11, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves. Be holy because I am holy. Again, in that later Greek translation, that becomes ego eimi, the Lord, your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because ego eimi, holy. Because I am, I am Lord, I am holy, I am, I am. And because that's the way God said it, good Jews avoided putting those two words together like that. They twist and turn their Greek sentences in such a way that they can say the words I am, but they either drop off the ego or they drop off the me, they drop it off, they split them up. You never say those together because that's what God said. And you don't want to sound like you're talking about yourself being God, which is why... Uh, if you think of things, like, remember Zechariah sitting there in the Holy of Holies when the angel came and told him that he's going to have a son? Zechariah said, not ego eimi, he said ego garemi. Not for I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. That's what your Bible will tell you, it says in Luke 1. That's not what Zechariah said. He said, I for am an old man and my wife is along in years. I for am? I for am? That's not good Greek. It's not good Greek, but it is a good way of not saying ego eimi. I wanted to say those words, but not together. Paul does the same thing a couple of times. And Paul in Romans 7 doesn't say, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Paul says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I of the flesh am. Let me break up the I am here. First Peter. Peter doesn't quote Leviticus. 
by saying, people, be holy for I am holy, like the Septuagint says. Peter says, be holy because I holy am. He purposely misquotes the Bible when quoting the Bible so that he can avoid saying, ego e me together. So what, right? You might go, <laughs> Kevin likes his grammar. Yes, I do, by the way. I do. I love my grammar. But it matters because Jesus went repeatedly out of his way to say ego e me over and over and over and over again. You know who else does that in the Bible? Nobody. I couldn't find anybody else. Maybe I just didn't look hard enough, but I couldn't find anybody else in the New Testament that did it. Anytime you say I am in the Greek there, it isn't. They've split it up funny. Or they only use one of the words, or they say it some other way. It should strike us because if that's the case, if people are bending over backwards to bend and morph and twist and break Greek, and Jesus says, oh, I'll break Greek so that I get to say it. That should say something because every time he says it, that means he's, he's making a statement. And that should stick with us. Because it certainly affected the people here. In fact, it should help us to understand why it affected people the way it did. Because there's a lot of verses that I don't know that we, we realize why people reacted the way that they did. For brevity's sake, I could go into all these. I'm going to try to stick to John's writings. So just go to the Gospel of John. Just look at that there. Just look at some of the times when Jesus did this. Like in John chapter 4, Jesus had to go through Samaria. And what do you know about Samaria? There you go. Samaria was, was made up of half-breed people who were uh, the descendants of the, of the people that Assyria had forcibly repopulated Israel with. And so it's Northern Ireland. It's Northern Ireland. You go, well, we're sort of Irish. We're basically Irish. I'm O'Brien, but technically I'm English. How do the Irish get along with the Northern Irish? Not, not so great. There's some trouble there. And so that's pretty much exactly what's going on with Samaria. Is people go, we have, we have Israeli names. We think of ourselves as Israel. And Israel looks at them and goes, you aren't. So he's going through Northern Ireland. And he came to a town called Sikar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was sitting there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. You know this story, right? Because it comes upon a Samaritan woman. And already, just if I say that, you already know tons of things. She's Samaritan. No good rabbi should talk to a Samaritan. She's a woman. No good rabbi should talk to a woman alone in public. That's inappropriate. His disciples go into the city to get him food. He sits there and talks to this woman. And she's there by herself at noon instead of in the morning or in the evening when all the women would go and have their social hour drawing water. So she's everything that he shouldn't associate with. In fact, the other Samaritans don't seem to want to associate with this woman. So anyway, he comes and speaks to him. Uh, when a Samaritan woman came to the well, or actually he speaks to her, he says, will you give me a drink? And the Samaritan woman said to him, well, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why on earth are you asking me for a drink? Jews don't associate with Samaritans. In fact, again, Samaritans don't associate with this Samaritan. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you'd have asked him. He would have given you living water. Now, literally, that phrase, living water, means he's talking about like a, a stream or a, a river or a bubbling spring as opposed to 
a bucket or a cistern or a well. It's someplace where you go, oh no, water just keeps moving through here. You can take water and there will still be just as much water as there was before. You can take bucket after bucket after bucket and there will still be just as much water. If you knew who you were talking to, if you understood the gift of God, you would understand this. In fact, God even uses this as an, as an example of some of this in, in Jeremiah. Back in Jeremiah, he said, my people have committed two sins. First off, they've forsaken me, the spring of living water. I'm the source of all this living water. And second, they dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can't even hold water. They disregarded me, the source of living water. They tried to get it themselves, and they can't. But my water is forever. Sir, she said, well, you have nothing to draw the water with, and the well is deep. Where are you even going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well, who drank from him himself, also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Because she sees herself as Israel. Like, oh, Jacob's my father too. Are you better than Jacob? I, this isn't just a well, sir. This is Jacob's well. There's a plaque. Do you not see the plaque? And I offer you possibly water. From, and you say, I could give you much better than this. She's like, better than Jacob? Is he? Is he better than Jacob? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water, good though this well may be, everyone who drinks this well, this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become a, in, in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And I love that because he's not even saying the water I give will never run out. And so every time you're thirsty, you'll come and you can always come here. He's saying, no, 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 no. I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to be a better source. I'm putting the source in you, you'll never be thirsty again. You become the river. You do. It's not just water that quenches your thirst. It's water that changes you. And you become that source of my water to everyone. To yourself. And the woman said to him, okay, give me some of that water. I got to think she said this with a chuckle. I don't think she's like, I am devout now. She's like, yeah, okay, give me this water. Then I won't get thirsty. I don't have to keep coming down here to draw water. Because I'm still thinking you're talking about the physical water instead of the spiritual thing that the water's pointing to. Jesus is talking about the spirit that's filling you, the, the spirit that's rushing through you. He's talking about something a lot bigger than, than getting a really good drink when you're really thirsty. He's talking about something bigger than tossing up the occasional prayer when you really need a prayer. This is more than just, I've got to tap into that every once in a while and get something. He's talking about never being spiritually thirsty Again, about God changing you forever. So to make his point, he pointed out some things in her that need changing. The succession of men that she's burned through in her life. And she's like, oh my goodness, you're some sort of a prophet. Ultimately, he says, you know, the time is coming, in verse 23, and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they're, they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. It's not just jumping through hoops. It's not just the physical issues. It's knowing God. It's not just dipping into the well. It's being the spring now that God's spirit rushes through. And the woman said, I know that the Messiah, the, the called the Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. I don't know whether she's pushing it off. I don't know whether she's just saying, yeah, 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 whatever. The Messiah will explain everything, whatever. And Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. 
In fact, he phrases it weirdly. It's not actually the way he says it. He says, I am he, the one speaking to you. And if I say it that way, you still may not hear what he said. Ego e me. The one speaking to you. When Messiah comes, he'll explain everything to us. Ego e me. I am. I am who I am. And I'm standing right in front of you. Is it any wonder that we're told, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come, I see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? It wasn't just that he's like, hey, I'm something special. He says, ego e me. And her reaction could have been one of two things. You're a nut. Or maybe you are. Ego e me. Because no good Jew would say that. Nobody. She may have never heard those words put together in her life. Except for maybe by a Roman here or there. But this man, who's clearly a man of God, says, Ego e me. I know that the Messiah will do this. So the people came out of town and made their way toward him. And meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, you got to eat something. Because remember, they went into town to get some food. But he said to them, I have food that you can know nothing about. Echoing what he had just told the Samaritan woman about the living water. And his disciples said, did someone bring him some food? Making the same mistake that she just did. Thinking it's all about the physical thing. That's what he's talking about. You go, no, it's a metaphor. I mean, yes, I eat food, but it's a metaphor. Yes, I was thirsty and I wanted some water, but it's also a metaphor. But a meaningful one, do you not track with this? Though, again, that is literally what they went into town to get, right? They're like, oh, we're going to go into town, get some food, come back. And he's like, I've got food. And they're like, but why did we go into town? I get it. I get it. My food, Jesus clarifies, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's... That's why I came. And I include that section because it kind of leads into the next important ego a me section in John. Remember John chapter 6, our extended bread analogy? He's like, I have food. I have food that is so much more important. I have food. And that's to do the will of him who sent me. I have food. He feeds, miraculously feeds thousands by the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And being trained by MCU movies, they go, more? More. When's the next one? You go, you just watch. They spent, they spent years making this movie and it spent gazillions of dollars. More? Where's the next one? Can you at least give me an after credit thing? Something. More. More, more now. More. I watched the extra credit movie. Okay. This guy, this guy. When's that coming out? You go. First century. MCU. They wanted more. Chapter 6, verse 26. He said, I tell you the truth. Let me be clear. I tell you the truth. You're looking for me not because you saw any kind of miraculous signs that meant anything to you, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You want more bread. You want free bread. Guys, don't don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. You're just focused on this place. You're focused on what you can get from the well or from the baker. And yes, you need to eat, and yes, you need to drink, but this is just bread. This is just water. You need to focus on the stuff that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man, the Messiah, will give you. On him, God the Father has placed a seal of approval. It's God who fills you up. The bread is just bread, but it's pointing you to God. That's why I did it. I didn't just want to give you free food. I wanted to point you to God and his provision. Do you, 
everything I'm doing, every miracle I'm doing is not about the miracle. It's about the God that the miracle is supposed to be pointing you to. Think about what he says a few verses later. Verse 32, I tell you the truth. He keeps having to say that. He keeps having to say, no, 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 really, really, really. I tell you the truth again. It's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven, in verse 32. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I'm, I'm, I'm that. There's water that quenches you for a time, and there's water that gives you eternal life. There's bread that fills you for a time. There's bread that gives you eternal life. It's, there's a difference. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. That's what, that's what the woman in Samaria said. I literally just got finished saying, I'm not actually talking about the bread. The bread is just a metaphor. I'm talking about a bread that comes down from heaven. Yeah, give it to us. No, I metaphor. Then Jesus declared, I am, ego eimi. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. It's not about bread or about drink. It's about the God who's providing eternal bread, eternal drink for you. Jesus says, Ego eimi. I am that God who is here to bring you to life. I tell you the truth, he says in verse 47. Seriously, seriously, really, really. He who believes has everlasting life. I am, ego eimi, the bread of life. Your forefathers ate manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven. Here, here, which a man may eat and not die. Ego eimi, the living bread. Rapid succession, he says it three times. Ego eimi, ego eimi, ego, I am. Something that nobody would ever say. No good Jew would ever say. He says it over and 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 over, even in one sitting. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. I was tempting on a communion Sunday to think, ah, he's pointing to communion. No. That would be confusing, theologically. Communion is pointing to this. He's not saying, at some point I will give you flesh to eat. He's saying, I'm who you believe in, and that belief, that, that, that understanding, that acceptance, that's what saves you. <sighs> Take the Seder. This will point to what I'm talking about. Then we go, ah, it's about the bread and the drink. No, it's a metaphor, an important one. But it's to remember that he's egoing me. We take communion not in order to get saved, not in order to remain saved. He made it clear, it's not our actions, it's not our doings that save us, it's our faith. It's our belief. It's trusting in him. So we take communion together to remind ourselves, actively, tangibly remind ourselves that it's his life, his sacrifice, his doing that even gives us the opportunity to believe. This is a stylized version of the Seder. When you think about the Jewish Seder, they didn't eat the Seder to be saved by God. They ate the Seder to never forget that they had been saved by God and to worship him and praise him for their salvation. We don't eat communion in order to be saved by God. We do it so that we never forget that we have been saved and to worship him and praise God for that salvation. And it starts with him saying, guys, I'm, 
I'm that bread. I want you to, to accept me. I want you to believe in me. I want you to follow me. So when he says he's the only way, the only name, the only living water, the only living bread, the only sacrifice that can save us, it's because we hear his ego in me and we know that he is God in the flesh that can change our dead bits so that we ourselves become a source of life. And that is either horribly egotistical or it's true. There's, there's nothing in between. He says, I have come from heaven. I am the bread that you must eat. I am the only one that you can believe in and have salvation. I am that one. I am the Messiah. I am God in the flesh. I am me. Only me. He's either nuts or he's right. Don't ever think he's pretty cool. He is, but he's either far more than that or far less than that. When Jesus spoke again to the people in chapter 8, verse 12, later on, he says, I am, ego me, the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We're walking in the light with Christ or walking in the darkness without him. There is no third option. He said in verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins if you don't believe that I am he. Which is a weird phrase, that I am he? Who? Did your Bible tell you who he is that he's talking about? That I am he? If you don't believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. It's an odd construction. It's the same construction in chapter 13 when he says, I'm telling you all this now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Actually, he doesn't say I am he. He just uses two words in both of those sentences. Ego me. So go back and look at that. I told you you would die in your sins if you don't believe that ego me. If you don't believe in me, if you don't believe that I am who I am, if you don't believe ego me, if you don't believe I am God in the flesh, if you don't believe I am Emmanuel, if you don't believe you're going to die in your sins. I want you to remember that every time he says that, every time he says that, people are going to have a jump start. They're either going to jump to a sudden realization like the woman in Samaria did, or they're going to jump against that. But every time he says, ego me, it's going to, they're going to wince one way or another. It's going to have an effect. And he says, guys, here's my effect. Speaking to Pharisees, we're told here in chapter 8. Speaking to Pharisees, he said, I told you, you're going to die in your sins if you don't believe that I am Yahweh. And you will indeed die in your sins. How do you think the Pharisees are going to appreciate that? How do you think most people would appreciate that, hearing him preach that? How would you appreciate it if I came up and said, I'm God, and if you don't believe it, you're all going to hell. I'm either correct, which I Or I'm a cult leader. There is nothing in between, is there? You're going to die in your sins unless you believe, ego e me, that I am. Who are you? They said in verse 25. Just, just what I've been claiming all along, Jesus replied. I haven't always been comprehensive in my answers, but I'm pretty sure I've been consistent. Haven't I been ego e me all over the place? Haven't I been? 
I'm not hiding it. I'm telling people maybe don't blurt it out because y'all have a problem with understanding what I'm getting at, but I haven't lied about it. Been pretty much open about it. Ego and me. Who are you? Uh, Yahweh. I have much to say in judgment of you, which is horribly egotistical of him, isn't it? Let me, let me judge you because I have the right to do that. Let me judge you unless he really does have that kind of authority. But he who sent me is reliable, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. They didn't understand that he was telling them about his father. But Jesus said, when you have lifted the Son of Man, the Messiah up, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I go in me. You'll know that I am who I am, and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me, has not left me alone, because how could I go in me abandon I go in me? I am who I am. I am Emmanuel. I'm God in the flesh. The word who is God, who has become the word who is with us. That is horribly offensive. Or else it's true. But there's nothing in between. Later on in the chapter, Jesus says again in verse 51, I tell you the truth. No, no. Really. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, sometimes we don't emphasize the my. Anybody keeps my word, they're like, ah, oh, from one moment, just emphasize the mind for a second. If anyone, if anyone keeps my word, if you do what I say, he'll never see death, which is insane and self-aggrandizing. It's horribly egotistical cult leader kind of promises. Or it's true. At this, the Jews exclaimed, now we know that you're, Jew- you're, you're demon-possessed. Abraham died, so did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps your word, they're never going to taste death. Abraham died. He followed God. People who follow you, they'll do better than Abraham? Seriously? Are you greater than our father Abraham? I mean, he died, so the prophets. Who do you think you are? Which is the same thing they asked a couple verses earlier, right? Who do you think you are saying stuff like this? But they're also echoing what the woman in Samaria said, didn't they? Do you really think you're better than Jacob? To which tacitly says, yes. Do you really think you're greater than Abraham? Yes. Have you not been listening? Yes. I'm so much better than Abraham. Yes. What kind of self-glorifying nutcase says he's better than everybody? Jesus replied, no, 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 no. If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. If I'm just talking about myself, no. It's not about stroking my ego. It's ultimately about honoring God and his son. I am his son. Dishonor me, you dishonor the Lord. That's that's where all this is going. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. If he didn't, you're right, I'd be egotistical. But since he does, and you disregard that, though you don't know him, I know him. If, If I said I didn't, I'd be a liar like you guys. Which is one of my favorite Jesus lines. I love that. All those people are like, he's just always so meek and mild. Sometimes, not always. Sometimes he's flipping tables and going, <laughs> you bunch of hypocrites. Here he's like, oh, then I'd be a liar, you know, like you guys. How would they have accepted that? He's not trying to be a jerk. He's not trying to be snarky just because he doesn't like them or anything. He's being flippant and derisive for a purpose. He's saying, you guys are quoting to me about Abraham. You guys are saying all this stuff. You don't get what you're saying. You don't follow your own Bible. You say you follow God, but you're not. 
I could play your game, but I don't play games like that. Not like you guys do. But I do know him. I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and he was glad. You're not even 50. You're not even 40. You're probably like 30-ish, the Jews said to him. And you've seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered again. No, no, really. Before Abraham was born, I am. And I love that. I love that. Because Jesus not only disregarded Jewish grammatical convention of avoiding putting those two words together that way, but he even breaks proper Greek grammar. That's bad verb tense. Before Abraham was born, which shouldn't he have said, I was? I had been there? There's a lot of other tenses he could have gone with. He's like, no, I'm going to be grammatically bad to go out of my way to say this badly so that you hear me say, before Abraham was ever even born, I'm Yahweh. I am. I am who I am, and I have been. I love the tense. I have been, I was, I am, I will be. It's continuous. I am. Ego me. Before Abraham was born, ego me. I just don't want you to know that I'm existed. I want you to say, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. Do you understand why? You might be tempted to say, oh, because he's saying he was before Abraham, or oh, he's saying he's the Messiah. But he's saying, ego me, over and over and over again. And he even broke grammar to say, if you didn't hear me, let me write it on a sign. Ego me, seriously. He's calling himself God. Doesn't it make sense that they would say, and we want to throw rocks at you until you die? I get why they're doing that. And he kept doing it. He kept doing it over and over. Not telling people to be good. Not telling people that he's got a better way that they should try out. Not just encouraging people to follow his example. Isn't that we, as a world, if we're not disregarding Jesus, aren't those the areas we tend to want to go to? Hey, you guys should be good. You guys should follow a better path. Here, let me help you to be the best parent that you can be. Here, let me, let me help you to be a healthy person. He does say those things. But if that's what we denigrate Jesus down to, that he's just really good at showing us the way that we should try to live out our days. We're not listening to how many times he says, I am not just a rabbi. I am not just a teacher. I'm straight up over and over again saying that, He's saying that he himself is the only way that you can find eternal life, the only way to find light, the only way to find salvation. That is drawing a line in the sand and one that we are uncomfortable with doing nowadays. You can tell a non-Christian that Jesus knew some of what he was talking about. They might go, yes, maybe he was a nice guy. But to say he is the only way that you can be saved and without him you walk in darkness. There is salvation with Christ or damnation without him. There is no third option. Man, not even every Christian likes to say that. In chapter 10, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Again, I am the gate for the sheep. Ego, me. Ego, me. I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, and the sheep didn't listen to them. Have you ever considered that verse from that angle before? We like to focus on the good shepherd, and that's great. But he's saying, oh, everybody came before me by definition. Compared to me, was a thief, was a robber. Everybody, everybody. I'm better than everybody who's ever come before me, ever. Is that uplifting or is that egotistical? 
Could it sound egotistical? Ego me, he says again in verse 9. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. That's the gospel. That's the capital T truth. There is no other gateway to God. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He'll come in, go out, find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I come so that the sheep, they may have life and have it to the full. We talked about that last week. In verse 11, he says it again. Ego me, the good shepherd. I am. Ego me, the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And we rightly usually focus on that last part of Christ's self-sacrifice. We'll remember that in a few minutes in taking the Lord's Supper together. But Jesus continues and says, well, the hired hand isn't the shepherd who owns the sheep. Ego in me, the good shepherd. Keep saying it. How many times just in this passage? Ego in me. I am. I am. I am. Well, the hired hand isn't the shepherd who owns the sheep. I am the good shepherd, right? Who owns the sheep. That's his focus here. He is talking about that he will lay his life down. When we preach that, we're not wrong. But arguably, the emphasis he's getting here is, I own you. You belong to me. He's a cult leader or he's Emmanuel. I'm not just another prophet. I own you. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. They're mine. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I will lay down my life for the sheep like the good shepherd who owns the sheep will. So again, they tried to seize him and he escaped their grasp in verse 39. But do you see why they might try to seize him? Ego and me. I am Yahweh who owns you. They're not going to like that. They're not going to enjoy that. He's drawing a line in the sand and placing a wedge between people. In the very next chapter, chapter 11, Christ's friend Lazarus died and he went back to Bethany. In verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home, which is kind of a flip-flop of the last time we saw them hanging out with each other. Because this isn't a story about why Martha doesn't get it, but Mary does. They're people, and people sometimes get it, and people sometimes don't. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. My faith isn't shaken in you, but I just can't help but think if you'd only been here. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And she said, yeah, no, I know. Grandma, we'll see Grandma again. You know, I get, yes, he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. I, I, I have that faith. And Jesus said, no. Ego a me. I am. Ego a me, the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection. You're waiting for the resurrection at the last day. I am the resurrection. Do you get that? He who believes in me will live even though he dies. That's either egotistical on my part or I'm right. And right now I'm putting the onus on you, Martha. Do you get this? Am I a good teacher who says that, yes, God will someday raise the dead? Or am I God in the flesh? Am I the resurrection? He who believes in me. Decide right now. Am I the nice guy? Am I the powerful man of God? Or am I the resurrection? I am the life. I am. And what does she react? What does she say? Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. The light goes on. We've never heard her say this prior to this. Do you realize how many times in Scripture the people hearing him say, Ego me," hear him saying, I am God, and either want to throw rocks at him or fall to their knees and say, you are the Son of God. 
It's important. And sometimes we miss it because we're just so used to the words I am that we miss what he was saying here over and over and over again. That's what makes her make a decision right there. Our faith in Christ cannot be sort of. In chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am, ego me, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Could he, could he be more clear there? Not just about the no one comes to the Father, but about the ego me. I am. I'm Yahweh. I am. I am God in the flesh. And this would have been just as unpopular then as it is with non-Christians today. Maybe for different reasons. But it is absolutely a line drawn in the sand. And people would not like it. Beloved, when we share, well, sometimes we resist sharing. But when we share, there is often a tacit tendency to want to ameliorate that, to, to make it a little less than, to make it a little bit more palatable. I want to make sure that I want to make sure that Terry can hear me. And so I want to talk about Jesus being good and that he really likes you and he's a really nice guy. And I might even start talking about he's God in the flesh, but it, but that whole there's lightness and darkness. You are in the light or you're in the darkness. You are going to have eternal life or you are condemned forever. There is nothing in between. You follow Christ and him alone or you don't and die alone. There's nothing in between. Man, we don't want to go there. And I understand why not. I do. I get why not. But Jesus keeps going there over and over and over and over and over and over and over, doesn't he? He's pretty clear about it. That is the good news. We can say, oh, it sounds like bad news. He goes, no, it's a good news. I am the only way to get to God. By the way, the gate's wide open. It's not locked. I am the good shepherd and I love you. I am the only way, the, the only name. I'm it. But I give it to you. I'll give you my name. Just ask. There's no elitism here whatsoever. It's yours. I died for you. John 15, 5. I am. Ego me. Every time he says that, every time he puts those two words together right next to each other, it's a bold, divisive, dramatic statement. Ego me, the vine. I am the vine. You are the branches. If, if a man remains in me and I in him, he's going to bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's either egotistically bad or really, really cool. You will stink as a parent if you try to do it in your parentness. But if you say, God, how do I honor you in this? Not what I feel like doing, but what honors you. You will stink as a lawyer. You will stink as a leader. You will stink as a... You can accomplish nothing on your own that isn't already just broken. It's horribly egotistical or it's awesomely good. Nothing in between. If anyone doesn't remain in me, he says, he's like the branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, burned. But people don't like to hear that. This is the gospel. And yet, he says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish. It's going to be given to you. That's the gospel. Just attach yourself to the vine. Just let me be the vine. Absolute destruction or absolute perfect blessing. Nothing in between and nothing but you preventing you from the absolute blessing part. You know, yeah, but I, I don't like the absolute destruction part. Then don't get destructed. Absolute destruction or absolute blessing. Nothing preventing you from the absolute blessing except for you. 
Let the Holy Spirit draw you in. That's the line in the sand that Jesus draws, the wedge that we talked about last week, the gospel message that we're told to share with those all around us because it's that important, it's that profound, it's that powerful, that binary. He says, you are an ambassador of that. Tell people that. Tell them that. One last example from John's gospel just to make the point about this. John 18, verse 3. Judas comes into the grove into Gethsemane, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials and from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they're carrying torches and lanterns. Oh, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Because Jesus never asked a question that he didn't already know the answer to. So I love that John's like, oh, he knew exactly what was going on. And then he said, hey, what you looking for? Knowing full well who they're looking for. Who do you want? Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I'm he, he said. Did you hear it? Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth. He goes, Ego me. And that's all he said. Those are the only words that came out of his mouth. Ego me. Chief priests are there. Everybody's going, yeah, I think he's a blasphemer. Do you think? I think so too. Do you think he's a blasphemer? I don't know. I just got money. So it's like, fine. We're all here. You go, we're looking for Jesus. Or you walk up and he goes, here's a teaching opportunity. Who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus. Ego me. And what's their reaction? Yeah, when Jesus said, Ego me in verse 6, they drew back and fell to the ground. Do you understand why? Every time he says, Ego me, boom, 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 there's a reaction. People say, I'm either going to fall to my knees in worship or I'm going to fall to my knees because I'm broken. Or I'm going to fall to my knees because even if my if, 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 even if my hearts don't worship him, my spirit, something in my spirit can't help but recognize what the rocks and the trees would cry out. Somehow, even here, I can't help but do it. This is the word of God made flesh, applying the name of God himself just to himself. A name that they had known God by for centuries, since the time of Moses. I'm going to cheat one more time because it's also John it's not the gospel of John but it's also John in Revelation the first chapter we're told that John was given an image of the resurrected Christ in all of his glory on the Isle of Patmos and the Lord said to John in verse 8 ego me, I am the Alpha the Omega said the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty when Jesus said ego me to the people who came into the garden to arrest him and they crumpled What would a resurrected, glorified Jesus speaking to his cousin John saying, I am, the first and the last, I am, the Almighty. What's the proper reaction to that? When I saw him, we're told in verse 17, I fell at his feet as though dead. Because that's the proper reaction. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. Yes, you are in the Holy of Holies. You are in the presence of God Almighty. And that is not a terrifying thing anymore. You can be afraid of this because you're on the wrong side of history, or you can be uplifted by this because you're on the right side of a relationship with God. There's nothing to be afraid of. Ego me, he says again. I am the first and the last. 
Verse 18, I'm a living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death, the grave. I do, because I am. I'm not just a resurrected rabbi. I'm not just a loving savior to be appreciated. I am who I am. I am your God. I've defanged death for everyone who believes. I am. I am. Now, a good sermon always has a good application, and this has just been intellectual. Sorry about that. I'm a firm believer that right action comes from right understanding, so yeah, hopefully this has got a bunch of applications. Hopefully you even find yourself saying, oh, this should make me stop and think about how I'm doing investments, how I'm doing parenting, how I'm doing uh, my teaching, how I'm doing my job at work. Wait, am I really starting with Christ? Am I... When I'm sharing the gospel with people, wait, am I not even sharing the gospel with anybody? And if I am, am I trying to water it down so that it's more palatable for them? Or do I let it hit the back of their throat so that they go, whoa, and have to react to it? Or maybe I'll do this. Um, Paul, when he's talking to Corinth, you remember Corinth, right? It's a place that's drawn to the sensual and the spectacular where there's all these divisions between classes and divisions between uh, races and divisions even within the church where everybody was trying to justify doing what they felt like doing, even though they had to know that what they were doing was vile, but they wrapped it in bible words so that they felt like they were doing... You know, America is my point. Wasn't it? You guys are so wrapped up in fighting each other and and differences of opinion. I follow this guy, you follow that guy, and I follow this guy, and you follow that guy, and I vote for him, and you vote for him, and I do this, and you do this. Insta-face to it. Corinth. And Paul said, you know what? When I was with you, I resolved to focus on Christ and him crucified. I'm just not... When I started, I just am not going to... Jump into all the wackadoodle stuff that you guys jump into every day. You wallow in it, and I'm not going there. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to focus on Christ. I'm going to remind you and me who Christ is. Beloved, you, you live in Corinth. It's not wrong to say, wait. Let me preach the ego in me. Let me share the I am. And when people say, that offended me, may it be because they're offended by the truth and not by how I shared it. Let me share it with gentleness and with respect. But let me share the truth. It annoyed so many people. And yet, some Samaritan woman, Martha, there are people that when they hear that say, He is. He is. And are saved. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much that you don't you don't pull punches. You don't you don't water down your gospel. But it's not a negative thing, it's not a dark thing. I thank you that it's joy and hope and light. But to understand that we have to understand there is darkness. And that without you, we don't have true joy. We don't have a living hope. We don't have light. Help us to remind ourselves and help us to live like we live every day as if attaching ourselves to the vine is not just a good idea. It is our lifeline. 
Let us eat, breathe, drink you and remind ourselves constantly of you. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I bless this table. I pray that you you use this to remind us of you, of what you've done for us and who you are. Help us to, when we eat, when we drink, remember you and say, Lord, you are the I am. You are the God who is and was and is to come. You are the only one. You are the one who actually exists. Help us to share that as the ambassadors of your kingdom. In Jesus' name and for your glory, amen.